morning, everyone. This is Kathy Mason from Mason Works Marketing here on Conscious Business Zone with my new friend, Robert Cornett. Hi, Robert. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here. So um, I am very lucky that I got to meet Robert from the IONS uh, 2023 IONS Conference, which is going to be held in near Washington, D.C., at the end of August and the first part of September. And um, and it's also going to be available online for you people that are interested in learning about death and dying and the, um, the beauty and the natural cycle of it all. So um, Robert is an actor and playwright and holds a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School. And so he he's also a death doula, an end of life doula, death doula, mm -hmm. and he works with hospice patients and their families in New York State. So um, what I what I'm excited to learn about is um, is first of all your journey from divinity school to what you're doing now. So could you just help us understand your your path and um, so that we can follow along with you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kathy, for inviting me. This is a great, uh, great opportunity. Uh, hello to everybody. Blessings, actually. Um, yeah, I just uh, my whole spiritual awakening actually happened fairly early in, 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 in my college years. Um, and I was almost instantly as I heard about um, spiritual experiences, esoteric writings, anthroposophy, uh, William Blake, Emmanuel Swedenberg, those things all just captured my attention, but also what they were saying just felt like it was correct. It was, it, I kind of got it right away. I didn't question it. Uh, reincarnation, when I heard about it, I, I just felt like, yeah, I've been here before. I, I, I have a sense of that. Um, and then I had some spiritual experiences actually involved with theater work that I did in college, some ensemble theater work where I felt like a spiritual presence came to me and helped me shape a character in, in a play that I was working on. Um, so all that led me to want to explore fur further and, and think about all this stuff and understand it. So I applied and got into Harvard Divinity School. Um, I didn't have a religious orientation, so I wasn't going there to be a minister. I, I just wanted to learn. And they had this terrific program uh, connected with the Center for the Study of World Religions there, where you could study all the religions and basically create your own um, your own study plan. So I did that. I studied all the world religions and indigenous religions. And what I found myself wanting to do, almost all my papers were about conceptions of the afterlife. How did they, these various religions think about this? Um, and what was the orthodox teaching? But more importantly, what were mystical experiences um, that were being described in these traditions about uh, the, ex the extension of consciousness after death? Um, and so that, that has stayed with me. Even back then, this was all the way back in the 1980s when I was in divinity school, and even back then, I had heard about the hospice movement, which was relatively new. And I always said, you know, I would love to do that at some point. So fast forward to my 60s, um, after, you know, 
work in holistic education, uh, teaching uh, a whole system of um, body, mind, spirit um, education to teachers and counselors. Um, I went into the corporate world to do um, human resources and organizational training, but I always kept this desire to know more and learn more. Um, and the past 10 years, when I turned 60, 10 years ago, um, I felt like I was called to go even deeper into this, um, to get involved with hospice and also to really understand where do we go when we die? What happens? Um, um, as I think in, in modern Western culture, none of us have, at least I didn't, certainly growing up in church and um, even in divinity school, there was no roadmap. Um, there was no image that I could work with other than some of the texts I was reading from other cultures that would kind of guide, guide you and, and actually guide you at the end of your life to prepare you for that. So I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about it, um, writing, talking to people, uh, doing some talks and workshops where people can explore how to prepare for death, how to contemplate death, how to think about death uh, in a culture that really avoids death, that denies it, that doesn't really want to accept um, the continuation of consciousness. At least our modern medical system doesn't accept that. So one of the things I realized in all of this was there has been a concerted effort from spirits on the other side of the veil to communicate to us here in incarnation um, about the other side, to let us know that it's there and that we have access to it in this, in this life, in the physical world. Um, and they've been doing this for... Uh, con in a concerted effort, I feel like it was a plan and they had steps that they were taking. And if you go back 200 years to the 1800s, especially in Western civilization, and especially in the, in the US and, and Europe, um, you saw the emergence of things like the, the transcendentalist movement with Emerson and Thoreau and uh, the Alcotts. Um, and they were getting their ideas actually from Hinduism, from the concept of the oversoul. And, and they were teaching about that. Um, and then the spiritualist movement started at that time as well and continued into the 1900s, um, where many, many people started to have experiences of deceased relatives communicating to them from the other side. Um, and so that began to be studied. The, the Society for Psychical Research uh, emerged in the late 1800s and you had people like William James, who were um, reputed scholars and other reputed people actually getting involved in psychic research. Uh, one of whom was a guy named Frederick Myers, um, who studied this deeply and wrote about the human personality and, and the survival of death. When he died in 1903, um, uh, I think about 10 years later, he communicated um, uh, his experiences of the afterlife uh, and it's a wonderful book that's been published by Geraldine Cummins uh, about that is called the road to immortality and he explained everything that he was experiencing and outlined it and talked about the different levels um, that he was going through after death 
And then back in that time, also in the 1800s, there were all these utopian communities that all had a spiritual motivation and they were trying to bring out a new way of living, a, a more a cooperative communal way of living. The Shakers, the United Community, the Mormons were part of this, Christian science, the New Thought Movement. It was just the late 1800s and early 20th century were just filled with this desire to understand and know. Um, the spiritual movement at its height in the early 1900s had over 8 million people involved in it just in the U.S. and the U.K. Wow. And showing you how hungry people were in the industrial age to, to feel like something was happening. And World War II created a lot of interest. As, I mean, World War I created a lot of interest because all these young men were dying um, and, you know, these horrific deaths and... and um, people wanted to know where they were. And there were a lot of communications that were coming directly from soldiers who had, who had died in the war, some of whom were lost, kind of like earthbound souls. They didn't even know they were dead. Um, and um, mediums and other clairvoyants who could work at that level and on those planes uh, started playing roles where they would contact those souls and let them know that they actually were dead and they needed to uh, continue to find their way towards the light and let, let go of the earthly plane. So anyway, those are, um, those are some of the things that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and studying. Uh, all of this, I think, has been culminating, uh, the same impulse from the other side, I'd say was culminating in, in the 1970s and beyond when Raymond Moody and other researchers came out with their near-death experiences and uh, and documenting those and studying those. And, and for 50 years now, we have thousands and thousands of stories, anecdotal um, and also veridical um, experiences that really indicate that people are out of their bodies um, uh, they have a medical crisis, they're out of their bodies, they see what's going on, they hear what's going on, um, and then they actually enter uh, another dimension uh, and have experiences, which my understanding of it is it's, it's, a, it's a glimpse. I think Raymond Moody called one of his books a glimpse of heaven. So they're just touching into like the beginning of the postmortem realm and having a sense of it, having an experience of that. Um, but people who actually die and communicate uh, through mediums and automatic writing and other sources, telepathic communications, um, they've gone further because they've died and they've actually go into, they, you know, there's the concept in the Bible of the, the being taken to the third heaven. Uh, some people talk about seven heavens. Uh, other people talk about 10 spheres or different dimensions of expanded con consciousness, each one more and more expanded consciousness um, and uh, traveling in the afterlife to other planets. Um, so there is a, a large, large universe out there that is uh, waiting for us when we, when we move on. So that's, uh, Kathy, that's a little bit about my background spiritually and why this is so interesting and exciting to me. And I do think science is on the verge, thanks, thanks to people like IANS, and all the researchers, but also other people independently doing this work where the fact of the soul is going to be scientifically proven 
And certainly within 100 years, it will be accepted. And, and, and our whole culture and society will then, it will transform just because of that. Right. Well, yeah. in, your, in your studies, did you find that there was a indigenous um, concept that you felt uh, portrayed the truth um, better than what we've used through religion or through philosophy? Was there any... Was there any, um, uh, I guess, myth or or um, teachings that that guided you? Yeah, there definitely was a concept of the afterlife. Um, people who've studied native religions, um, and some of the translations, I think, are probably not correct because these are these are modern uh, or whatever, even Christian, you know, anthropologists researching all of this and they're, they're, they're trying to put it in, in language they can understand. Uh, these experiences are, you can't almost put in English in, in, in language because they're just, they're yeah. too profound. But uh, there's the concept of the happy hunting ground. There's the sense, uh, which I think we really need to learn from indigenous cultures throughout the world a sense of the ancestors um, actually being alive, being connected to us at all times, uh, looking over us, uh, being available, particularly the wise ones who have crossed over to provide wisdom to us and, and, and help guide our lives. And, uh, and Native American culture, African culture, Chinese and indigenous culture, they, they all, there's ancestor worship, and we kind of make fun of that now because we're all so smart, and, and, and you know, who, who, that's not that's so superstitious. But um, but it's not. It's it, it's something that that exists, and um, and we need to celebrate it and and open ourselves up to it because um, there, there's there's much to learn from that. Right. So I, I'm just wondering um, the. Um, it feels like we're going full circle. It feels like we're in the dark ages coming back to the Renaissance. Yeah. And quite honestly, it feels like that uh, the pre-Egyptians were much more spiritually and technologi technologically yeah. advanced than we give anyone credit for. We have this superiority complex about the Western world or, or the modern world, like, oh, wow, we've got it all figured out when they, they probably knew how to work with the systems of the unseen in, in such a profound way that hopefully we will rediscover as we go into this Renaissance. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I think, you know, I think um, things evolve. So, um, but you, it's very important to take with you the truths and the wisdom that that have gone before you. Um, and I think we're going to go beyond. You know, with what what we can do technologically, we're going to go even beyond what the indigenous cultures did, if we let ourselves um, explore. Um, right. And, right. And, and once we get that, there's we have more intelligence than just our five senses. Um, and, and especially intuition and imagination, that will lead the way. Those are our higher mind um, that we all have access to right now. We can we have intuition, we have gut feelings all the time. Right. Uh, we have imaginations, and 
these are the things uh, when I was involved with education that we tried to teach because I never got that. <laughs> I never got that in school. Um, you know that that I that my imagination was something I could develop. Um, and uh, I mean, certainly I participated in things that let me artistic things, but um, th there there's a discipline to intuition work and, and imagination work where you it really moves you to an expanded state of awareness um, and and things move out from there. Um, so, yeah, I think. I think when education starts to, and we're seeing mindfulness in the schools and that kind of thing, college courses on mindfulness, that's that's all great. That's the beginning, I think, of that opening. Okay. Um, but we need to go much further, and I think we need to go faster because uh, our planet's in trouble. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think what happens, too, is that the um, opportunity to have these kind of discussions where they're not just academic, where you really get to get to the heart of it, and yeah. the um, and the knowledge that pra a practice, a spiritual practice of meditation or mindfulness or or prayer, however however you um, connect, is is the path to um, solving all of these um, yeah. esoteric problems that we have. Um, problem solving. We don't have problem solving skills that are taught in in schools. Um, and so by going to our imagination or going to higher knowing um, where the expanded view of all of this, the way the game is really being paid, played, um, yep. which hopefully quantum physics will uh, will give a different um, uh perspective of it so it'll be more accepted as well but there's been people the highly sensitive people that all along um have been like canaries in the coal mine right. um, you, know, you walk in a room and you can feel it you know and you actually can feel where the darkness is and if it's attached to someone or not i mean mm -hmm. um you know that that's what we're coming to now is that i believe this whole um, period is a time of waking everyone up to being sensitive like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that's that's some some of the messages that come from um, wiser people on the other side um, are, are are basically saying what what you're saying, Kathy, is that humanity is beginning to develop new abilities. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were old abilities that we had before, uh -huh. um, but um, we've lost them, and um, and and now the time's come for us to develop those those higher mind abilities that will let us let us, as you say, experience. And and, and education has to be experiential. I think there's a place for book knowledge, but there has to be more experiential education that people. I mean, how can people believe this if they can't experience it? Right. Um, so I do feel like that's that's the next step is more and more people will be having experiences because they're meditating, because they're uh, they're being taught guided visualization um, and, and other techniques that open them to. I mean, that's what opened me up. <laughs> um, I, I had guided uh, visualization experiences that uh, I didn't even know were, were happening to me. <laughs> and um, and uh, 
and I, I had this real sense of a, of a spirit being, being, being my teacher and my guide. Right. Oh, that's so perfect. So um, I, I um, agree. I think that um, our, um, our creation, our capability to be creative beings and co-create with consciousness at a very high level is accessed through meditation in my experience. And then you can get to the present moment because all the rest of this is this huge distraction from yeah. that. And um, I think more and more people are getting there. There's a gentleman named Bill Phillips who's got um, the World Tai Chi Day that's now t Tai Chi and Qigong. He's mm -hmm. been doing it, I think, 20 years. And yeah. he's got um, a... a um, initiative that he's um, created to get Tai Chi and Qigong into schools so that people, so kids could actually learn. I mean, they'll yeah. know when they're in sports and they're in the flow, but what if they could intend yeah. that and, and, and enact that? And yeah. um, that's, that's uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, Maybe we could talk about um, a couple of the slides that um, that I have, just to give people a taste of uh, some of this may may be new to people and some may already know this uh, who are watching. But um, one of my teachers, um, and this slide comes from his work. His name is David Spangler. You may have you may know him, Kathy. He was one of the people in the New Age movement back in the seventies and eighties, and He's, he's still around. I'm still learning from him. He, he was very involved with Findhorn, uh -huh. Findhorn community, one of the leaders there for no, a number of years. And he has a number of what he calls inner colleagues. Uh, I mean, from childhood, he had the experience of um, inner colleagues uh, taking him on journeys and showing him other dimensions of reality outside of the earth or connected to the earth, really. But not not physical reality um and one of the things um and he's not the only one teaching this uh, i think it's a it's a whole new sense that's coming about in spiritual um education is the sense that the earth is a is a is a conscious intelligent being itself mm -hmm. um and the word gaia has come about uh through uh a scientist named Lovelock who talk, who who called talked about the Gaia principle, um, and uh, David has picked up on that term as well. And there's other old terms going back to ancient times, where the the, the soul of the planet was called the logos, mm -hmm. which is a Greek word for you know the the, the mind of the planet. Um, but anyway, whatever you call it, uh, the Earth is a being, um, and it's been around for you know, millions and millions of years. Um, and what David has found out is that a long, long time ago, before any history was ever documented, um, humanity made a contract. Um, the soul of humanity itself made a contract with the earth that it would come into physical form, incarnate form, and it had a choice to do that. It didn't have to but it chose to do that to help the soul of the planet uh, in its own evolutionary purpose. Um, and so part of what we're here to do in each of our individual incarnations is find a way 
to do that, to support that larger soul that we're all a part of. Um, and anything we can do that provides love, blessing, healing um, in the world, to the human kingdom, to the plant kingdom, to the animal kingdom, um, all of that is part of the evolutionary work of the planet and supporting that. Uh, but he also learned from some of his inner colleagues um, about the, what's, what is described as the post-mortem realms. That's his language for the afterlife. Okay. Um, and so he talks about that when we incarnate, it's re really like it's a, it's a play in three acts. <laughs> um, and the first act is actually before we come into physical life. It's our, it's, we're in the pre-birth realm and we're actually making the decision to incarnate. Um, and we're actually forming with the help of elemental beings, angelic, devic beings, um, who are on the other side working with us the whole time to build our physical vehicle, which is made up of etheric energy. It's There's physical energy, obviously, but there's etheric energy surrounding that. There's an, um, there's an emotional body, there's a mental body, um, and, and there's our soul body. And all these things are working together to actually come into form. And it, it includes, you know, selecting our parents. Um, and uh, all of that's a conscious decision that we make and, um, and that we execute with a lot of help from the other side. So that's the pre-birth realm. And um, some people call this the, um, the, fixed, the fixed design for an incarnation, what you're here to do in this particular incarnation. DK is the initials for a Tibetan. Um, that communicated through uh, telepathically through Alice Bailey, one of the people I, I've learned from. Um, and then Act Two of incarnation is what we all experiencing right now: our physical life uh, and, and life in not just a physical body, but our life in our mental, emotional, and, and, and etheric bodies. And one thing that education doesn't pay enough attention to is it needs to develop all of those bodies, not just our minds. Um, physical development is important. Getting to understand the energy centers in your body is important to learn about, even as a child. Um, developing your emotional body and, and helping it to become um, uh, more pure, more clean, you know, less filled with the debris and the garbage that we end up picking up through life with all of our emotional challenges. Um, and the mental body, which is sort of a, a, a form of a light body um, that's very connected to our soul and where we can connect with our through our intuition to the higher realms. And so the third act is actually when we enter the postmortem realm, uh, when we make that tr transition and we actually shed the physical and etheric vehicle. And um, the Tibetans are... You know, really are great teachers with all of this. And this, this Tibetan that communicated with, with Alice Bailey um, has a whole volume of this in one of her books about what happens when people are, when people die. Um, but he's, he says actually both at the hour of birth and at the hour of death, there is a brilliant flash of light, electric light, 
And at, at the moment of birth, the hour of birth, right before you're bur bur born, if you, if you were clairvoyant, you could see this flash of light taking place um, in, the, in the mother's body and, and uh, in, in within, within the, the child that's, that's being born. And then at the hour of death, this same brilliant flash of light happens, which is when the soul disconnects and breaks contact with the physical body and actual life and consciousness withdraws. Um, I've, I've been able to sit with people who have died in hospice and even uh, when my parents died and my first wife died uh, six or seven years ago now. Um, and if you sit with someone who dies, there is life there the moment before they die. And there, that life is gone. Um, it's a shell. The body is a shell at that point. And just seeing that, I think, and not being afraid to see that um, is an important discipline. It's an important process to take into yourself because you, you begin to actually feel like, yeah, the, there was something really there. You know, grandpa was there, you know, even though he looked feeble and he was tired and ill and, you know, and sick and all of that, it was grandpa. Um, and then all of a sudden that's not grandpa. That's just, that's just a, that's just flesh. Yeah. There's no grandpa there. And, uh, and that is, that's what leaves. <laughs> Um, so anyway, that's that's just a model um, to think about. And then when you get to the postmortem realms, um, there's just a whole other number of things that that you experience. <clears throat> People who have near death experiences describe a, a, a lot of these things that happen to them um, um, in in the, in the beginning of the postmortem realm. Um, the the Christian concept of purgatory actually is a good word for for what happens when you first enter the postmortem realm. Pur purg purgatory comes from the word purge. It's a, it's a purging, it's a cleansing. Uh, and this is when you're, you've released your emotional body and your mental body, and there's a lot of garbage in there. I mean, we can't avoid it. You know, we, we go through difficult times. We, we have sympathy and antipathy and love and hate and challenge and, um, and all that stuff we carry with us into the postmortem world and our person personalities actually come with us and and it needs some cleaning and a lot of times it needs healing um, and uh, some people experience in near-death experiences and also in the spiritualist writings that there are guides that actually take you to almost a hospice healing center yeah. in the in the other world because you're kind of burnt out you know you're you're kind of um, you've been through a lot and you need rest um, before you can even continue. Um, so, um, and another common thing in the life review and also is described from people who have died and then communicated telepathically um, is the sense of a life review taking place. Um, and, and the near-death literature and IAMs, they're all over this. They have so many documented experiences of this. Um, but this is a chance for you to really um, get a sense of what the whole incarnation was about. Did you come in and meet your fixed design that you came in with? Did you achieve some of the goals that your soul had for itself? 
Uh, and most importantly, the, the major question that always gets asked in a life review, how did you increase or expand your ability to love? And it really becomes almost all about your relationships. It doesn't become about, you know, how much money you earned or how successful you were in your career, or how much knowledge you had, <clears throat> uh, how much expertise you were, you know, maybe an expert in your field. It's about relationships. How did you handle that? How did you treat people? And in some life reviews, people actually feel what the, the people in their lives felt from their words and behavior and actions. So it's not like you're just watching a movie. You're actually feeling what that person felt. And it's almost like one person described it that the ripples of selfishness, egotism, whatever I was experiencing at that time, anger with someone, those ripples, they ripple through not just the person that received them, but the people that they contact. Um, and it affects them and it ripples through the whole social network. At the same time as kindness and love and caring for people, it ripples. It ripples right through all of the relationships that you touch and then the people that they touch. And you actually, during the life review, can, can often just experience that and see that. And often what they say is that, you know, there is a sense of judgment, but there's no one judging you. It's, it's just your soul almost looking back objectively, stepping back and seeing what happened and, and almost in a matter of fact way and saying, I could have done this better or I, I did do this well and, and uh, look at the positive effect it created. So these are some of the things that happen in that postmortem realm. Um, one of the really interesting books, uh, Helen Greaves wrote a book, Testimony of Light, uh, about a friend of hers, Francis Banks, who died and went to the postmortem realms and described once she came, she was met by, she was a former nun who, who left the church and then became just an educator. But she was greeted by some of the nuns who had passed away and they were actually taking care of her. Um, and then what she found is that there were all these tasks and, and all these things you could do in the postmortem realms. There's halls of learning, there's places of service, there's um, travel through different realms where you could experience different things. Um, music is experienced in a lot of near-death experiences where you actually feel like you're hearing the music of the spheres. Um, and that music permeates the afterlife. Music comes from, you might see a garden or flowers, but they're singing to you. <laughs> um, and, um, and people can pick up things that they were often, it's a, it's a period during this initial time in the postmortem realm where if there are things you wanted to do that you never felt you had time or the ability to do that you can work on. So there's people doing artwork there, there's people writing, there's people uh, composing music, playing music. Um, all of these things are available um, for the soul to continue to do until it decides it's, it's, it's learned enough temporarily. Uh, and then the next, the next place for it to go <clears throat> beyond just the initial postmortem realm is, is actually the realm of the soul. 
to be in the realm of the soul itself, which is pure light and pure love and pure energy. Um, and, um, and there's continued learning there in, at that level as well. It's just a different frequency of a, a different vibratory rate. Um, and um, it's very heartening um, to, to know that this might be even a possibility for us. Okay. Should I go to the next slide? Yeah. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. So one of the things I've been working on as part of my hospice work, but also just uh, in, in the spiritual work that I do with some spiritual groups that I, they do, I do some talks with is um, how to get people to think about uh, and get comfortable contemplating death, actually make it a spiritual practice, a meditative practice. You don't have to spend all day doing this. It's not your only spiritual practice, but it could be one of them. Um, and one is the simplest thing to do is to just look outside, look at nature. Look, I'm looking out the window right now. And outside my window is a forest um, that is filled with cycles of life, death, and rebirth constantly. Um, and just looking at nature and how that is, how, that's how the, that's how the earth operates. It, it, it operates through things coming into form. And then think about a flower, how it comes into form. Um, and then it, it, it's finished with what it's, what it can do with that particular form and it shrivels up and dies and it lets go of seeds and those seeds. sow the next, the next life, the next, the next birth. Um, so the cycles of nature, I think, are great teachers. There is a whole spiritual practice of life review, actually. Um, it can be done, actually, uh, what they call it the daily evening review, uh, where you actually take time before you go to sleep, before you're going to actually, actually, when you go to sleep, you go to the astral plane, and, and that's, that's the beginning of the postmortem realms, it turns out, actually. But before you actually go to sleep and, and enter the astral realm, look back on your day um, and, and, and look objectively, not judgmentally, not, you know, kicking yourself or, or, you know, abusing yourself in the process, but just simply, how did my day go? Did I, did I take care of people? Did I tell someone I loved them? Did I, did I, was I helpful? Um, was I contributing some positive energy to the world, to the world? Did I do any blessing? Was I able to bless in any way the life around me? Um, and just acknowledge that and um, take that with you into your sleep and take that with you into your next day. And um, another version of that is to do a life review on your birthday annually uh, or every 10 years or do all of these things. Um, and you can create a timeline of like, what were the major events this year? What were the major events decade by decade? So I've looked at the past, you know, six decades of my life and kind of seen, well, the first 10 years were really all about my, my formation and, and developing my body. And, um, my dad was really into sports and, um, uh, I, I'm not. I wouldn't have been that kind of probably coordinated of a person if I wasn't constantly playing sports with him and with other kids. Um, and, um, and also, you know, my parents, as many, as many issues and problems that they have as all families have, 
they did provide me with a stable environment in which to grow up. And I, I feel very privileged and lucky for that. And that set the stage for me to be able to do my next decade and the next one and to go to college and, and have an awakening uh, during that decade of my life. Um, and then to have a career and, and actually to feel like I had a calling. And, and what did I do with my calling? Um, uh, how did I treat people at work? How did I create uh, and my job in human resources was how can I create a work environment that makes everyone feel important and cared about and that they're they're developing their potential. They're growing and learning every day. Um, so these kinds of things you can look back on. And when you do that, um, when you come to the other side and you actually have your actual life review, you've already done a lot of the work. Um, and it should be easier and certainly less painful. Some life reviews in, in the afterlife are described as painful because people realize all the things that they really missed. So that's, that's another practice to think about. Another practice, which I deal with actually with all my patients because they're actually living this, what if you only had six months to live? Even if you're 20 years old or 30 years old, what if you only had a year to live? How would you use that time? And that really gets you to focus to say, well, wait a minute, what's important to me? Um, and, and, and all of a sudden things that are unimportant start to move aside and you, it makes room for what are the most important things in your life that you can do to make this a better world? Um, so that's another exercise that people can do. And then I think everyone should also do this, certainly as you get older, is how do you want your final days and hours to go? This is what I do as an end-of-life doula with my hospice patients. And unfortunately, often they have in hospice usually only six months to live or less. And that's kind of late in the game to be thinking about this kind of thing. Because first of all, you're not in great shape physically and emotionally and oftentimes when you're, when you're terminally ill. Um, and it's very hard to get that mental clarity that you might have had 10 or 20 years ago. So I encourage people to just think a little bit about it and to have a little plan. Um, in, in hospice work, we, we come up with what's called a vigil plan for people, which is really essentially how do you want your last two or three days to go when, when it really is the nurses and the doctors have come in and they've said, you are, you are actively dying now. Um, and, and you're in the stage, you might have two weeks, you might have a week, and certain physiological things start to happen that start to become clear that there only may be days left. Um, and so I ask people to think about that with their loved ones so we can make note of it. Um, and, uh, and, and there's no scrambling around or guessing. People can have exactly what they want. Some of my patients want... Um, family around them and kids and a lot of activity and liveliness and they want people to go on with their lives and not treat them like they're sick and dying just just be with them um and i had one patient that told me that's what he wanted to do so we set it up and it, the last couple of days was just beautiful i mean the college kids came in the, these were grandchildren uh they came in with their laptops and they're doing their homework and the little kids are crawling on the floor with their toys and People are bringing in food to, to, to serve to each other and, and, and people are going up and whispering in his ear and, and you know, petting him on the hair and the hair and the head. And, 
just having these loving moments with him and uh, exactly how he wanted his life to end. But others might want few people there. They might want it to be more sacred. They might want a candle. They might want certain incense um, or certain music. Um, I find a lot of my hospice patients are drawn to harp music. And so I, I, I bring my iPad and I play harp music for them, um, especially, especially people with dementia who actually aren't that communicative. Um, but when music is played, something changes and, and they come alive. That part of their brain is not damaged. Um, and it might be popular music. It might be sacred music. It could be any number of things. But something really changes in their being when music happens. Um, and that's a real gift I think people can give to their, to their family members who have dementia and when it's so hard to communicate to them and they can't explain or express what's going on inside them. But my sense is they are processing the end of their life just like anyone else would be. And then you can spend time with the dying. Uh, as a hospice volunteer, that's always a great way to contemplate death or at least spend more time than you'd like to just get out of your comfort box and be willing to do that once in a while. And then the sleep exercise, it's kind of esoteric, um, but that's a process that people do when they're falling asleep where they actually try to remain conscious past the time when you normally would just slip slip away to sleep mostly most of us just drift off to sleep that's how that's how I usually fall asleep and you know I just gradually kind of relax and let go and and then I'm I'm sleeping but in this sleep exercise you try to not drift off but to stay conscious stay alert as you enter the astral plane and actually experience what the astral plane is and it's not easy to do, I've tried it, but occasionally I've had glimpses of it. And it can take years of practice to do this. Tibetan monks often practice this. <clears throat> and they have a whole yoga of sleep, of dream yoga, as well as sleep, ex sleep activity. Um, <clears throat> but if you can train yourself to do that, it, it is a way um, to make your transition a little easier because you've, it's sort of a rehearsal for leaving your body. So that's that's it for that for that slide. Um, well, can I add one thing? Real yeah, I'd love to hear any comments. Okay, so I, my first year in college, I took a class, and I don't even remember what it was. I thought it would be an easy A. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what it was, but they they had us do um, uh, guided meditations, and it was held in a church in an A frame. And uh, there were about 25 of us that were um, down on the floor um, listening to this. And the, and the um, professor put us through what would happen if we died a year from now and then brought it up to um, like tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. Um, That's and, several, <laughs> and several people quit school. I mean, they realized that if they died tomorrow, this wasn't what they wanted to do. So I don't think it was the, I don't think that was the outcome he was looking right. for. <laughs> but it was profound. I mean, once you do that, 
Yeah. And you really have a chance to consider that. It it changes your whole perspective. Yeah. And yep. the, the spiritual experience I actually had um, right after college when I did some theater work was exactly that, Kathy. We did, it, it, was, a, it was an ensemble piece. So it was ex- back in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of experimental theater. Um, and I just loved that. When I found out about that, I said, that's for me. You know, I don't, I don't want to play Ibsen or um, um, <laughs> you know, traditional theater, but this was where you can actually create a play yourself and it's, it's, it's not linear, it's expressionistic. <clears throat> and the theme of the play was about death. And the concept was every actor creates a character who's died and then you go back and recreate parts of their life up to the moment of death and then enact their moment of death. And that's when a spirit guide came to me. And, and uh, I felt that was the presence that uh, became my character. I kind of acted out his, his death. Uh-huh. Um, and it was almost like a, he was in a loincloth. It was like an Indian guru almost. Uh, and I didn't know anything about Indian gurus in those days. So, wow, um, that's cool. Yeah, so uh, you tapped in. Yeah, so it was, um, it was, and I think if you go back, because I studied a little bit about ancient theater, early theater, uh, ritual theater, um, um, it was often about leading. It was, it was religious. It was, it was sacred drama. Uh, the early drama, and it was leading people. Um, when the Greeks talked about the, the mystery schools of Eleusis, and they had plays of Demeter and Persephone and Hades, they were taking them on a journey to the underworld and having them experience what your professor did with you, yeah. what might happen when you die. Right, right. And, um, and the veils, I think, were thinner then. So I think a, a lot of interesting kind of stuff happened that uh, might have blown people's minds in those in those experiences. So the kind of theater I love is is that I, I I always had a vision then, and I'm now in my retirement days thankful that I can start to think about how to do sacred drama, um, and uh, that kind of gets to you know what, what the play that I d- developed about near, near death experiences. So I'm going to go to the next slide. So now, now you can share with us what you're doing at the IONS conference. Great. Um, coming up on September 3rd. Great. Yeah. The, um, I had this idea, and this was all pre-COVID, um, as I was getting deep. I was doing hospice work. I was continuing studying the afterlife and there's so much literature on it. It's, it's endless um, what you can read and learn about. And I had the idea that some of these stories, especially the near-death experience stories, could make incredible theater. That they are inherently dramatic and profound and deep and moving. And you and uh, you know you see videos of people talking about their near-death experiences, and those are very powerful. But I had this sense of what a group of actors could do with some of these stories. Um, so during COVID, I, I couldn't do, um, any acting classes in person, but there were a couple of acting teachers that did, uh, online, uh, teaching and I took some classes and, uh, it was a new technique of, of acting that I hadn't worked with before, uh, developed by a Russian actor named Michael Chekhov. 
and they have a school called the Michael Chekhov School of Acting, and, and these two teachers are in their 80s, and they've done professional acting all over the world, Broadway, um, touring groups. Um, you know, all, you know for, for 50 years, they've been professional theater people and, and acting teachers and coaches. So when I was doing the class with them, I, I was very moved by the exercises they were leading us through. And I was playing around with different ideas I had for scripts um, as, you know, because they always say, you know, we're going to do some exercises, but now have some text ready to, to read. So I developed some rough text uh, for these plays that I was working with. And um, I, I just felt like it was coming alive. So um, I got together with them and had lunch and said, I have some ideas about doing a play on near-death experiences. And I've started to working on a script and, and they both said, you know, you know, Robert, we're in our eighties right now. We're not both in our mid eighties. And we think about this a lot. <laughs> um, you know, we, we're, we think we're coming to the end at some point. So uh, uh, let us know what you have. And so I really worked hard on the script and brought it to them and they liked it. And then they pulled together a group of actors and we did a number of readings of the play in their living room. Um, and got feedback and I revised it and honed it and got it to the point where they agreed, let's start to rehearse it. And um, we came up with um, with a play. You can go to the next slide. There's a brief description, Kathy. Okay. Um, so what this was, and this is how I imagined it, and this is how they ended up working as an ensemble with, uh, with the director of the piece guiding us. Um, it's an ensemble theater piece based on true stories of people who've had NDEs and they follow. And I, this idea came from, from Raymond Moody. He talks about near-death experiences are a travel narrative. They describe journeys out of, out of normal consciousness into um, another realm of consciousness. And so this play starts with the moment of death, quote unquote. Uh, where many of these people, these characters, start with being declared clinically dead or having enough of a medical crisis that they're brought to the edge of death and it tips them over and they leave their bodies. And so that's the beginning of the play. And then it goes through how they cross the veil between life and death and the experiences they've had, the visions of life in the postmortem realms. And then the play concludes with all of the actors coming back together on stage, almost like a support group, and sharing with each other what happened when they came back from their near-death experience. Wow. And, and that's, if you read the literature, it's not easy for a lot of people. It's not like, oh, I have this profound experience and I'm all set for life. It's, first of all, you know, one character in the play was in a plane crash, and so they were burned on 70% of their body. It took them a year and a half to just be able to function. Um, and stuff goes on in your life. Your spouse may not understand what you're talking about, uh, or you may not be clear if what happened to you was real, or you're afraid if you tell somebody, they're going to say you're crazy. And, and people who actually do say that to loved ones, they often say, you know, I don't want to hear this. This is crazy talk. And, and so people experience that, and you know, the actors um, talk about those experiences as well as how they are trying to live their lives in accordance with what they experienced. Um, and they all in one way or another come back knowing that love is the most important thing 
on the journey of life. And that gets really ex explained to them in, in a visceral way that they can't deny. Um, and so that's the gist of the play. Wonder. And, um, it just comes from all the soul work that I've been doing, I think, for my whole life. I, I had a calling to, to work on this play, to develop it. Um, and somehow, I, you know about synchronicity, Kathy, I'm sure it, it happens to you and, and others in this field. Um, the stars lined up and, and uh, Ted Pugh is the director of the piece. Um, and he's, he's just an amazing guy. He's just sweet and uh, charming. And um, he's been doing this for 50 years. Um, he started actually acting in, in World War II in the Army. He, he got drafted and uh, didn't particularly want to fight. <laughs> um, and he had this talent and someone picked up on that and they put him right in the, the group uh, that was you know, the, before the USO happened. Uh, they had theater groups uh, performing, performing for the troops. Um, and, um, and so Ted's, he's, he's, he's been on Broadway and, um, he's, he's just a, got amazing stories of his whole acting career. And he actually said that one of the actors that he knew very well, who was an atheist came up to him one day and just whispered kind of like the sparkle in his eye. And, you know, he, he said to him, you know, I know that life continues. <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? You're an atheist. And. And he said, no, I, no, life continues. I, I had a near-death experience. And he went on to describe a heart attack in which he left his body. So, so you know, for Ted, it, it's a very real thing um, in his life that, that, that he can be helping to, to, to dramatically show oh, that's cool. what's going on that, with this. That's cool. So, so and one thing, um, this is the... Um, yeah, thanks for putting this up. Joseph Campbell, who many people have heard of or maybe even read his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, was um, just a brilliant, um, uh, you call him a mythologist. He studied all of the world mythologies and, and went around the world studying them um, and, and wrote extensively uh, on all the mythological stories that, that came about. And he ended up coming up with a concept uh, of what he calls a monomyth. It's a, it's, a, it's a myth that happens in all cultures uh, that he labeled the hero's journey. And in simple for forms, it's three parts. It's There's a departure that takes place. Uh, it can involve a sense of being called to an adventure. It can also involve no way I'm not going. Um, and it can also involve a mentor that is going to take you on a journey. Um, and, uh, this was, this is what happens in, in Dante's divine comedy where, um, he has his mentor, uh, comes and, and, and takes him on a journey through, uh, uh, through, you know, the purgatory and hell and, and paradise. But there's some version of this where there's leaving the ordinary world and a near death experience is you leave ordinary consciousness and go to. Uh, some portion of, of uh, an unordinary, extraordinary world, which happens to be the post-mortem world. And then you have experiences during that journey. And that's the, that's the phase of the hero's journey that's called initiation. Uh, it can involve tests. It definitely involves going through a threshold and feeling like you've gone to uh, another place. There can be death, birth, ordeals. 
Um, there could be finding a reward. Uh, sometimes it's called um, an elixir uh, of, of, of medicine, of wisdom. And, and, you, and you have these profound experiences which take place in near-death experiences as well. And then there's a return. And all near-death experiences involve a return in some kind. There's either a willing return where they say, yeah, I, I need to go back. They need me. I have not finished with the work I have to do. Or more of an involuntary return where in one of the characters that plays of the play, the uncle shows up in the afterlife and, um, you know, welcomes, welcomes the character and, you know, he, he meets his uncle, and his grandfather and all these relatives surround him with love. And then they let him know, you can't go, you can't go any further that you, you have to stop here and go back. And, um, and so that's when his uncle says, let's jump. And he said, it's like jumping into a swimming pool. And then he pushes him <laughs> and he's back in his body on the operating table. And, and that's the end of his near-death experience. So that's a little flavor of the plague, Kathy. I don't know if we're running out of time. Um, we, are, we are running out of time. I'm sorry to say, because I love what you're doing. And this, these are the participants that all get Yeah, through. these are the ensembles. Uh, I'll just name them quickly. Vincent Rapolo. I'm in the I'm in the cast. I play a musician. Desana Smith plays a, a woman who had near death multiple near death experiences as a child. Lori Portocarrero is a gifted storyteller and actress. Eddie Allen, who's a TV actor and stage actor, he's been on Law and Order and all the TV shows. Um, Ted is the next uh, male there. He's the director, Ted Pugh. And then we have two musicians who play lyre music. Oh. Um, um, Sarah and uh, Christina are, are accomplished lyre musicians. And I always felt this needed music to help tie the pieces of the story together. So they came in, essentially improvised with us, and they provide music in between each of the stories and at the beginning and the end of the piece. So it really creates a tone and a mood of really entering another world. Um, and wow. it's, a, it's beautiful music. Wow. So this is going to be amazing and a live performance. I don't, I've been yep. to six uh, ions. I've never seen a live performance like this. So yeah, um, yeah. It'd be, and it's not a workshop, it's a real live performance. Yeah. So it's a performance. Yeah. Wow. We're going to uh, take a pause after and then talk a little bit about it. And I'll share some of the things that I just shared here today, as well as um, the actors talking about what it was like to do this play. Wow. So uh, thank you so much. This has been so informative and um, you've really helped us understand and hopefully not be as afraid of death as we have been and uh, i'd love to ha have another conversation with you about the soul and personality sure I'd introduce yeah. you to some people that it would be fascinating to have the conversation with yeah, uh, yeah. because of their perspective as well so yeah. um but thank you all um uh, if if you want to get in touch with robert the best way i think is his linkedin profile is that correct mm -hmm. sure yep Right. So, yep. and um, I'll put it in the um, comments and I'll make sure it's up everywhere where you can see. So, sure. um, and, and uh, uh, Noelle saying, wow, hope the play is recorded. I, I'm sure it will be. 
Yeah, we're, they're, they're trying to work on that now. We hope, yeah. we hope so. We'll, we'll find out. That, that yeah. would be, be nice. Yeah. Well, we Kathy, try. Kathy, thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, it's great that you're doing this uh, this work for the conference. Yes, yes. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated with it. And honestly, what you'll see when you go to the conference, when you go in person, it creates a field of um, that remembering of who and, and what you really are. And that love is just addictive. It's just um, when you get back to that, that's all you want to be around. So so I haven't missed, once I ex, um, was exposed to it, I haven't missed one. So right. even online. So right. anyway, yeah. well, thank you, Robert. And I look forward yeah, to Thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank Take you. care. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Please share.